0: Hello from Austin and welcome to episode eighty six of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, August 14th, and I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. episode eighty-six. That's that just gives me mets. Nineteen eighty
1: six. The only the only happy moment. Well, the one of the one, one of the very few. few happy moments in my in my professional sports history. Thanks, Bill Buckner. Seriously, <laughs> Dan, well, no, we've we've talked about this before. Thank you, Bob Stanley. Well, the game so was lot. already tied. The Mets were going to win the game if it went on to the eleventh inning. Bill Buckner was. It, it, Bob Stanley gets way too little blame. I mean, listen, the tying run in a potentially decisive World Series game scored on a wild pitch like, you know, imag- Bill, imagine if it were for Bill Buckner how much we talk about Bob Stanley. Exactly.
0: So, congratulations Bob Stanley, yes. and you owe Bill Buckner. All right, so Bobby, we're we're sort of back. Um, yeah, uh, we're, we're going to do a regular episode this week. Regular Thanks. episode. We really appreciate all you guys who reached out with the, the kind words about the deep dive. We're encouraged to the, do that the, again. The,
1: those of you who, did, who reached
0: out with less kind words, we, we don't appreciate we, you. We, we don't <laughs> acknowledge you. Uh, no, we got pretty much uniform positive feedback on that. And I think the general sentiment is, hey, from time to time, yes, do that, which is
1: good. Because I'm going on vacation.
0: Yeah, Steve, Steve thinks he's allowed to leave the building. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where he got this idea. As, as your associate dean, I object. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, uh, you know, I can't... Wait, didn't I have you sign some sort of non-leave-the-building agreement?
1: Well, it might be unenforceable.
0: Should I take you down to the situation (laughs) room and uh, threaten you with litigation?
1: That that might be illegal. It might indeed. But, I mean, all right, so we actually have a whole bunch of relatively small, I think, developments to talk about. No like ginormous stories. But we also want to solicit suggestions for additional topics for deep dives. I think Mm -hmm. we have some in our heads. But if there are cases, or doctrines, or historical episodes that you think are relevant to this podcast that you'd like to know more about, and that you think we might actually know enough about to discuss in detail. (laughs) Don't let that stop us. Yeah, well, you know. All right, so um, really quickly, here's a quick table of contents rundown. We're going to do a a 20-second Doe versus Mattis update. We're going to talk about the two major circuit decisions that came down literally while we were recording last week's Hamdi Deep Dive. The D.C. Circuit's Al Alwi decision, the Ninth Circuit's Rodriguez decision. Bobby, there are two pending nominations to the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, or as Karen puts it, the P-Clob. That's the name. Don't worry about it. P-Clob. Um, we have a little bit of a military commissions update. That is to say, um, if and when the Al-Nashiri case ever gets back off the ground, There's a judge. There's now a judge. <laughs> judge Schools. And then we're going to talk about some Trumplandia because I guess we have to mention Omarosa and. It's in our contract. Oh, and the Manafort trial. And I mean, <laughs> p- perhaps most. I, mean, I actually think the most important thing that happened in Trumplandia in the last week was um, the release of Judge Howell's 93 page opinion oh, yeah. um, in the Andrew Miller uh, subpoena context, where she basically explained in detail why she thought. Uh, Mueller's appointment and Mueller's investigation are constitutionally legitimate. That was reinforced, Bobby, uh, yesterday with a ruling from a Trump-appointed district judge in D.C., Judge
0: Friedrich. Yeah, and I think we'll talk more about that than some of the the, the more... That's uh, that's actually law. Yeah, Um,
1: some of the other stuff. You have a couple of notes from the National Security Division in our our recurring uh, dispatch dispatch from the NSD. Uh, and then, and then uh, we yeah. we our, our, we had lots of ideas for frivolity, so instead of actually taking the time to pare them down to the good ones, <laughs> it's just going to be a frivolity
0: smorgasbord. Exactly. So we'll, we'll save that till the end so you, those of you who really could care less about that can tune out.
1: Apparently last week we lost some listeners when I started singing, so I
0: promise no singing. Oh, I, I don't think you should ever promise that. Yeah. Life should life should be like a musical, Steve. It should never be a moment where you you might not bust out in song.
1: Yeah, fair enough. All right. Um. So let us dive in. Um. Bobby Doe versus Mattis update. Go.
0: Another extension. Oh. Shocked. Oh. Uh, so this is uh this is another two week extension of the uh reporting deadline on the party's progress negotiating a release of John Doe. We still have there's there's no new insight as to what exactly they're trying to uh, come to agreement on. The possibilities are that he's indeed going to be released into some area of Syria. Um, It's definitely possible that the delay reflects that they're trying to work a deal to send him to Saudi Arabia instead, after all. It's also possible, It it, it seems odd it would take this long to just figure out a deal for Syria. Like, if there were—because here's—
1: If there was a a sticking point, presumably— they would have, you know, if there was a, a point of no return, they would have realized that they couldn't that, right. they were, that negotiations were at an impasse.
0: Right. So, so it seems it seems unlikely that what they're waiting on is just deciding how they feel about some particular drop-off location, like the one originally indicated. Right. So the possibilities are that instead they're trying to figure out a deal for what's next for John Doe, and and if it's going back to Saudi Arabia, then working out a deal to get the right assurances from the Saudis about what they're going to do with him when he gets there that will make him now willing to go after all, whereas he wasn't willing to go earlier when the plan was that he'd, I guess, go into Saudi custody when he arrived. Now, it's also possible, though, that what's going on is a hang-up over travel documents. He doesn't have any. He doesn't have a passport. Remember, Doe is a U.S.-Saudi dual citizen. doesn't seem he has a passport from either right now. Maybe they're okay. waiting on a Saudi passport, or maybe he's trying to get a U.S. passport. So just, just to just to fill this in, I, I actually have a little bit of personal experience I can illuminate this with. It may seem odd to, to
1: <laughs> that you would have a U.S. citizen traveling overseas without a passport. So... Karen, oh, I mean, you could lose them. Well, or you could, so my wife is actually a dual citizen. Karen is is half Israeli. Okay. Um, and she hasn't had an Israeli passport since she was four, right? So if this were a context where it was like, how come she doesn't have, she's an Israeli citizen, why doesn't she have an Israeli passport? Well, she, she she's a dual citizen. She hasn't needed one to travel internationally. So, although apparently she
0: does need one to enter Israel. They were mad at her last time. Well, okay, so that's actually apropos of this really great Thank you. that uh, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Kahn, our friend at SMU has who's the go to authority on all things related to uh, citizens and travel rights. He's got all kinds of amazing scholarship and a book. in this area and a book on the topic. Um, so, Jeff wrote a piece for Lawfare that went up yesterday addressing this question of what what is the rule if you've got an American abroad who, for whatever reason, doesn't have their passport and the government, for whatever reason, doesn't want to let him have a replacement or, or the, the first one. Um, and I think some of the things I learned from this that I thought were interesting, I'm going to mention a few. One is that uh, there's a statute eight us code 1185 B eight us code 1185 B. That's part of our immigration laws. And it provides as to citizens quote, except as otherwise provided by the president and subject to such limits and limitations and exceptions as the president may authorize and prescribe, it shall be unlawful for any citizen of the United States to depart from or enter or attempt to depart from or enter, the United States unless he bears a valid United States passport. So that's pretty remarkable and it just says clearly you're not it's not legal to let somebody in the country if he presents at a port of entry, in theory he should be turned away according to this if he doesn't have a passport. So if the government won't give him a passport, Steve, it would seem that there's a de facto exiling of a person who, yes, has citizenship in Saudi Arabia, but also has citizenship here. For
1: It would be an interesting constitutional
0: challenge. Indeed. So Jeff, Jeff basically says, look, it, the, the, the weight of authority here favors that he'd have a constitutional right to reenter. Yes. There's a, a fascinating Fifth Circuit decision from 1964. Ooh, about- the old Fifth Circuit. Yeah, the old Fifth Circuit. I, I, uh, our listeners may not know,
1: right? The, the Fifth Circuit used yeah. to actually run all the way from Florida to El Paso. Basically, the old South Circuit. The old South Circuit, and yeah, it, it was in
0: 1981. Which is why the numbering's kind of funny. When you go below, you go from first to second to third to fourth, keep moving south, and then you hit the 11th. Well, so because so, you used to hit the so,
1: fifth. So ten and eleven were the two that didn't go organically, right? Mm-hmm. So one through nine unfolded geographically, mm-hmm. and then ten and eleven were were carved. So te- the the ten circuit was carved out of the old eighth, and the eleventh was carved out of the old fifth. That's some good judicial geography
0: nerdiness, Thinking? right there.
1: I right? mean, if I'm good for nothing. I <laughs> But At least I'm good
0: for judicial geography nerdiness. I feel like that whole whole exchange was just like, that's what this show is all about. (laughs) All this stuff about headlines and waiting national security fairs, we're just looking for little chances to nerd out. and 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 this creates a great trivia question, which is, what is the most frequently
1: cited circuit opinion? And the answer is Bonner versus City of Pritchard, because that is the circuit opinion where the new 11th Circuit held that it was adopting as binding precedent Every decision of the old Fifth Circuit.
0: And so just year after year they have to just constantly Case hit after that again. case that Bonner versus <laughs>
1: City of Pritchard got cited.
0: Nice. Uh, it tells you something. all you need to know about citation count studies. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> all right. Uh, as, as as
1: as as I know,
0: you and Danielle are in the midst of the law review submission season. We are. We'll, we'll talk. You know, during frivolity, let's go over sort of what we've been writing this summer because um, oh. I do have an article out there. All right. So back to Doug. oh yeah. Sorry. Okay. So the Fifth Circuit ruling is worthy versus United States. You had an American journalist who basically circumvented travel restrictions and got to Cuba and etc. And et cetera. and, uh, and the, they tried to keep him out. And the Fifth Circuit had the following to say, um, quote, it's inherent in the concept of citizenship that the citizen, when absent from the country to which he owes allegiance, has a right to return, again, to set foot on its soil, Uh, close quote, and then there's there's more, uh, and then the quote begins, to choose between banishment or expatriation on the one hand, or crossing the border on the other hand, being faced with criminal punishment, the loss of some of the rights and privileges of citizenship as a felon, close quote, that would not be permissible. Um, Now, at that time, it's interesting, Section 1185 or its predecessor was actually backed by criminal penalties, and now it's not. So you might try to distinguish worthy and say, look, of course, you can't make him a criminal, but maybe you could still just deny him entry. I don't think so. I don't think it's even a close call. I've said this before.
1: I mean, I think one of the few areas where immigration law tends not to break down along even remotely partisan lines is as it applies specifically to Birthright citizenship, yeah. right? That that the the Supreme Court, even as it has evolved dramatically ideologically, has been emphatic about the hyper limited contexts in which the U.S. can either formally or
0: or effectively
1: exp- expatriate, right? A birthright citizen.
0: Well, John Doe may presented a less attractive okay. case for this, but uh, I, I would st- I would say that if as opposed to the as opposed to the Cold War cases involving communists, I mean, yeah. Well, in this, you saw how those went. Um, I think that is, if is, what they're hung up on. If what they're hung up on is whether or not this guy gets a U.S. passport, um, I could see where that might drag things yep. out. Because I, I, I can see where the government doesn't want to give him one. Plus, it's a complicated interagency process. It's not DOD. It's it takes state. a long time. Yep. right? But at the end of the day, I don't think they can actually deny him one.
1: All right. But let me just add that this is my, my weekly opportunity to say it has now been 11 months um, as of yesterday since Doe was taken into custody and still no merits ruling. So one more time with feeling, well, that's a bad
0: precedent. So I, I won't repeat, you know, I, I my view is it, it sure took a long time, and I was with you for a while, but now that they're at this point where they're both jointly negotiating, no, listen, I feel I, like the clock is sort again, of told.
1: I, I, certainly from Doe's perspective, right, he has – I know, has, you're, you're criticizing the court. Well, but also just I'm, – I'm thinking sort of long-term about like the next – in the next Doe case – what kind of precedent the government will now think it
0: has set, factually if not formally. Right. But I, I guess what I'd say is to that is I think that all they could fairly claim is some amount of months relating to the front end of this process, yep. where, where the court is at fault for not moving faster yep. than it did. Um, but I think if the government were to come in and say, hey, we're entitled to basically 11 months or no, 12 no, no, months, no, no. It's not, that would oh, be oh, very no. distinguishable. Right.
1: It's not, it's not quite that direct. It's more the sort of, you know, the next time, imagine a future case where a detainee is saying he has like some kind of not speedy trial, right? But like you know, let's move the ball forward, and the government can say, "Well, here's a here's an example where it yeah. took 11 months." True that. I'm just saying. True All right. that. Um, All right, other
0: detainees. Speaking, Speaking of, of long-term detention, instead of 11 months, let's talk about 17 years. Right. So head away from Iraq and Syria to Guantanamo, uh, the Alawi case, which dropped in the middle of our. Hamdi Deep Dive, which was an awesome coincidence. <laughs> and we said a little bit about that. We gave the bottom line as it happened. We we paused the recording and, and you know, read real quick. By the way, I
1: listened to that. I actually thought it, it came across pretty well.
0: Nice. We should do that more often. Heck, maybe we'll even start editing things. Nah. So
1: uh, as the person who would be doing the editing, <laughs> I, I, I say, I say, I, I,
0: I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, a little, Edit, schmidt it. A little behind the curtain there. Steve does all the technical sure. work. I just walk into his office and say, are we ready to go or what? Come Bobby, on, man. Bobby's chop, the,
1: chop. Bobby's the outward facing part of the podcast. Bobby does the website. Bobby does the posting. Bobby does all Mostly, that. Mostly, but no, oh yeah,
0: that part, yes. Right.
1: I do the. I'm the. I'm the guy in the trenches. I'm now, Scotty.
0: Some people sometimes wonder about our our, our Twitter feed, and, and also at times there's been questions about the uh, the show notes. Mm. So those, so those are mysteries, and they're not always. Should, so should we should we resolve the mysteries? Nah. Oh, okay. Nah. All right. It's not. Always, you you may think you know,
1: but you may be wrong. Here's what here's what I'll say of the of the Twitter feed and the show notes. One of them is written by both of us, and one of them is written by one of us. And we'll just leave it to you to figure out. There you knowledge. go. All right. Um, so Alawi. The bottom line, I think, folks already know, right? The D.C. Circuit, in a unanimous panel opinion by Judge Henderson, joined by Judges Garland, Chief Judge Garland, Judge Griffith. Um, so a relatively, you know, diverse panel. Mm-hmm. D.C. Circuit. That's right. Um, rejected the argument. Rejected basically two arguments about Hamdi. Mm-hmm. Um, one that the detention authority had unraveled. Um, because of the amount of time that's passed, because of the wind-down, you know, the, sort of, the fundamental changes in the nature of U.S. military operations in the Afghan combat theater, and two, that it had actually formally expired. And the D.C. Circuit says, on both counts, no. Right. Um, I, the only thing I will say is I, I, am, I am heartened by one aspect of Alawi, which is sort of back to a debate that Deborah Perlstein and I have had for a long time about the Supreme Court's 1948 decision in Lideke, and whether the courts have any role to say in deciding when a war is over for purposes of, of detention. Ludicke was about the Alien Enemy Act. Ludicke can be read, although Deborah disagrees with me about this, um, Ludicke can be read to say that when a war is over such that detention authority expires is a political question, and so courts have literally nothing to say about it. Al um, always says quite a lot. Without ever bothering to sort of reflect upon whether it's appropriate for you know, I'll always a merits
0: decision. It's not a justiciability decision. So I, I take it your your view on Lutike. And by the way, listeners, uh, Steve's got a good article on this. Lutike's lengthening shadow, one of the ah, earliest. That was that was well recall
1: in the in the in the Journal of National Security Law and Policy, a an underrated peer review journal of which you oh, and I fantastic. are both editors. Yeah, absolutely. So we're biased.
0: Uh, yeah, we are. Um, and it's, uh, it's also a fascinating. You note. Know, is Eric Lutike was that his name? I think that's right. Yeah, uh, fascinating case of uh, of a guy associated. With the Nazis, who was in the United States, German citizen, I guess, but and civilian, so, right? And so, like you know, as as used to happen in in interstate warfare, all the citizens of the enemy power can be; they often aren't, but they can be detained under these statutory frameworks. And the Alien Enemy Act of 1798 allows that exactly. Sorry. Anyway, okay. So um, the the quote from Ludiki that I think you know, kind of gets to the heart of the matter. Uh, quote: Whether and when it would be open to this court. To find that a war, though merely formally kept alive, had in fact ended is a question too fraught with gravity even to be adequately formulated when not compelled. That doesn't say to ever be answered. It says we aren't going to touch that unless we absolutely have to. And mind you, this was in the, this was in the spring
1: or summer of 1948, right? So three full years after the entity
0: called Germany had ceased to exist. And so the, the general takeaway is that the court certainly is saying that In general, it's a political determination to say the war is over on such and such a date, then that's the default rule. I think we'd all agree. Mm -hmm. Um, I think ludicrous can fairly be read to say that if you're presented with a preposterous enough scenario where the executive branch is trying to artificially keep it open when it's just obviously not the case, the courts could intervene at the margins. Well, this
1: goes back to a deeper debate about the political question doctrine, which is whether the political question doctrine is actually a justiciability doctrine or whether it's just a deference doctrine.
0: You Um, know I love that topic.
1: And, 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 you know, I, I I love teaching the Walter Nixon impeachment case because the the three different opinions, the majority opinion by Rehnquist and the White and Cedar concurrences are really brilliant reflections of these very different yeah. approaches to the same doctrine to reach the same result in the same case.
0: And I, we've probably said this before that, uh, you know, in my argument – Deference is a spectrum that yeah. runs from politeness to fully binding deference. At that far end of the spectrum where it's fully, truly binding and dispositive, it's indistinguishable from the court not having a role, except in more symbolic ways, which may matter. But so the outcomes will be the same. I, I, I think I generally agree with one exception, right? which
1: is a, a, if you, a pure political question would not depend upon what the actor to whom you are deferring has said or done. Right, whereas binding deference still requires something that they, they actually to, do something that they actually do
0: something yeah. to defer to, right? So, it, it, right, unless well, I suppose in its most robust capacity, binding deference could mean you treat inactivity as a choice not to act.
1: Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, I, the, we, I think one of the one of our deep dive topics might be the political question doctrine. Yeah. So, so we'll, be we'll, fun. we'll. Anyway, all this is to say, Alawi is decidedly not a political question decision. It is a you know careful, I think unsurprising analysis of why, based on extant authority, detention authority under the AUMF
0: is still very much alive, yeah. at and, least for someone like Al Ali, a Guantanamo detainee. And, and as we've said all along, I mean, the facts on the ground in Afghanistan, one need only look at the headlines today in the past couple of days about massive uh, and rather surprising to some observers uh, Taliban military advances, including overrunning an, arm, an Afghan army base, um, the idea that basically things have sort of reverted to sort of a peacetime role there. Now, I, I recognize that's, that wasn't wholly the, their position, but but there have been some arguing that sort of argument. It, it's not persuasive it remotely based on the facts on the ground. The more interesting argument that I think here that the awis council was actually advancing was, you know, be that as it may, the U.S. role has formally shifted to such a support port-oriented role. Uh, at least it's been made to sound that way. That and maybe, a security agreement. And, and and you know it gets to a question of formalism versus functionalism. In in actual practice, we're still using force on a on an armed conflict level basis. There, I think that's very clear. Uh, you're still going to get combat pay if you're deployed there. So, so there's a lot of reasons to. Yeah, thank. yeah. No, so I, I mean even I don't think I'll always is wrongly decided. I, yeah. I,
1: I quibble with some. I mean, as with almost anything Judge Henderson writes, I think she's a little bit too flippant in how she dismisses some of the arguments she's rejecting. But I actually, you know. I don't know that I would have reached a different result on that panel. Now, the the most important thing, though, to me, besides the fact that they reached the American L.O.E., is what they don't decide, Bobby. So at the very end, mm-hmm. um, they go out of their way to stress that they did not just dis- reach Either al substantive due process argument, that the length of his detention raises substantive due process concerns, or the procedural due process argument, we talked about briefly before, the sort of the ratchet idea, that as detention goes on, mm-hmm. perhaps the government should, ought to be held to a higher burden. Um, and the court says, listen, you didn't raise those in sufficiently full flower in your briefing, um, and so we're just not going to pass on them.
0: Which, which means the court didn't take the occasion, didn't say you don't have Fifth Amendment Due process. clause. Right. Once the again,
1: rights. the D.C. Circuit has managed to avoid clarifying whether Kiemba One is still good law on that point. Yeah. Um, but why that matters is because, of course, there is the Matan case, the pending eleven detainee CCR habeas action in the district court, which was argued last month, where you know I, I think. There are some factual distinctions in the statutory arguments, um, but where I think the
0: real heart of the matter is the constitutional claims. It'll be, I'll tell you this, and this will segue nicely to our next topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be a titanic event if these courts begin to start talking about having substantive and procedural due process rights under the Fifth Amendment for these non citizens of Gitmo, thus going beyond the habeas focused ruling in. Uh, in uh, Boumediene, but speaking of non Extraterritorial
1: constitutional rights, yes. Yeah, speaking so, of that, so also while we were recording the podcast last week, um, a remarkable thing happened in the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth. So we talked probably more than people ever really care to talk about these cross-border shooting cases, um, and the Ninth Circuit finally—I mean, it had been sitting on this for a while—decided it's creepily similar cross-border shooting case to the Hernandez case, where, once again, I'm co-counsel to the petitioners. Um, this case is called Rodriguez versus Swartz. This was a shooting outside, I think, um, oh wait, Nogales. Okay. Um, and unlike in the Hernandez case, in this case, the government's actually prosecuting the CBP officer. Um, they prosecuted him for murder, the jury hung. They are now planning to retry him for manslaughter. Um, so here we have a case where even on the, even the government is front and center in the narrative that this was unlawful, unconstitutional – well, unlawful excessive force. Okay. Um, the district court, before the Abbasi decision from the Supreme Court, had said um, no qualified immunity because you didn't know at the time you shot him that he wasn't a, an American citizen um, and qualified immunity is based on the facts as known to the officer at the time of the episode – and, yes, Bivens, um, because this is an ordinary law enforcement excessive force case. The factual setting is not
0: sufficiently problematic, right, to militate against so Bivens. So it's just a run-of-the-mill excessive force Bivens action.
1: Which which, which the Supreme Court has never poo-pooed, right? I mean, which the Supreme Court has consistently said is the core of Bivens, right, is the sort of, this, as, as Kenny said in Abbasi, the, the search and seizure, the ordinary law enforcement search and seizure context in which it arose. Um the case was appealed, and while the appeal was pending, we had Abbasi and Hernandez one go up to the Supreme Court. Um, Abbasi certainly changes the Bivens analysis. And so the Supreme Court sent Hernandez back to the Fifth Circuit. We know what happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Ninth Circuit eventually took supplemental briefing and waited and waited, and a year later handed down this decision. And then this remarkably, I think, interesting opinion by Andy Kleinfeld, who is on no one's list of liberal Ninth Circuit judges. I mean, this is a solid Republican, you know, George H.W. Bush appointee. Um, In an opinion by Judge Kleinfeld, the Ninth Circuit says, one, no qualified immunity, and in the process holds that the Fourth Amendment applies to a cross-border shooting by a U.S. law enforcement
0: officer. Is there a discussion of how that interacts with
1: uh, Verdugo? There's a long discussion, yes. And so Judge Kleinfeld spends a long time explaining why Verdugo-Riquidez dealt with different facts Mm -hmm. and why Verdugo-Riquidez is not fairly read as categorically foreclosing all Fourth Amendment protections for all non-citizens outside the U.S. in all contexts. Um, And he says, listen, the key here for him was that this is a... Unlawful excessive force claim, a Fourth Amendment seizure, where the seizure began with a U.S. officer standing on U.S. soil. Right. Um. And now – Right. It's not a wholly extraterritorial It's not wholly extraterritorial. Now, of course, you know, this will beg the question, well, a U.S. military officer at Creech Air Force Base, you know, shooting a drone – is
0: also standing on U.S. soil, right? Does the location of the shooter or someone in the kill chain, and what about the intelligence right. behind that, et cetera? So this is what, so I'm that more, sort of planted in the U.S. for constitutional purposes.
1: I am more partial, for partly for that reason, to Justice Breyer's dissenting opinion in Hernandez One. I still don't know why it's a dissent because um, <laughs> it really wasn't a dissent. Um, where he and Justice Ginsburg explain why there are actually a whole bunch of factors that, taken together. Explain why they think the Fourth Amendment applies. Remember in the limitroph. Um, right, 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 right. And, and I think oh, that's. Oh gosh, I, I've heard that in a while. I, I think that's a. I
0: actually think that's a better it, analysis. It does make more sense, and it helps you anticipate and perhaps deal with in advance these other extensions. But to be of the clear, doctrine.
1: apart from the Fourth Amendment holding, I think the rest of the court's qualified immunity analysis is deeply consistent with Hernandez One, where the Supreme Court reversed the en banc Fifth Circuit for saying no, for saying that there was qualified immunity. So right. so far so good. Then we get to Bivens, and. Over the course of like 15 pages, Judge Kleinfeld methodically marches through a bossy mm-hmm. and explains why, you know, this ordinary law enforcement excessive force case is exactly the kind of Bivens case a bossy meant to preserve. That even though it arises in a new factual context, this is just, this, you know, there are no special factors. He walks through why the proffered special factors don't make sense. Right, there are no adequate alternative there are no alternative remedies. And he walks through why that's a meaningful distinction from Bossi. bossy. Mm-hmm. Basically, he does all of this the work that our cert petitioner Hernandez II said the Fifth Circuit didn't do. It's really incredible. So he makes in this is old wine in new bottles. Mm-hmm. Exactly argument. so. Um now it provokes a dissent. I mean, so Judge Milan Smith and this this, this leads me to, to sort of do one of my nerdy blue book things. Um, when you have multiple judges on the same court with the same last name and you're referring to them parenthetically in a footnote, you have to put the first initial... So with M period
0: Smith comma J period comma dissenting. Very good. Yeah, you got to throw the J in there. By the way, that I wish we would just get rid of that practice. The, the J. J period, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 causes too many. We'll talk about this in uh, lessons for one L's later. Seriously. But causes too many people in the early days of law school to think that every opinion is written by somebody whose first name is J, J. period yep, yep. something. Totally, <laughs> that, that totally happens. All
1: right. Anyway, um,
0: I, all right. So so, 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 we, so, so, there's, so, so we have Smith, a split.
1: So Smith dissent solely on the Bivens point. And he says, and, and Smith basically sides with Judge Jones's majority opinion for the Fifth Circuit in Hernandez, too. And says, no, 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 Bivens. So, yes, we have a, like, bang-on circuit split,
0: where it's usually hard to get a circuit split with such similar facts. Yeah, this seems pretty dead on. And you were, am I right, when this dropped, you were literally in the midst of working on the Still am. cert uh, so reply. The, so
1: in, we filed our cert petition in Hernandez, two on June 15th. Um, the respondent filed his opposition last Monday, so August sixth. Um, and so I literally just started working on the reply. And I was like, "Oh!" So instead of just trying to convince the Supreme Court, this is a really important case. Now I can be like, "And there's a circuit split."
0: Wow. Between well,
1: between two of the three circuits that border the, that border Mexico.
0: Yeah, that's pretty strong for you. I got to say, I like your odds.
1: Well, I mean, let, let me put it this way. I th- so so two two really quick points on top of this, right? The first is. Um, the defendant in the Ninth Circuit case could have gone on Bonk and could have tried to get the Ninth Circuit to read the case on Bonk. Now, I know some folks are saying, oh, it's the Ninth Circuit, they would never do. Well, remember, the Ninth Circuit is unique among federal circuit courts in that when it goes, quote, on bonk" unquote, it doesn't actually go to all of the active judges. So if you go on bonk in the Fifth Circuit, you know who you're getting, right? You're getting every active judge on the Fifth Circuit who isn't recused. On the Ninth Circuit, every active judge votes. Whether to take the case on bonk, but they actually only hear the case "quote on banc, unquote in a
0: limited panel of eleven, and they don't know at the time they're voting to accept on banc whether they're then behind the veil of ignorance, having to decide like I think we should take it. I, I indeed, hope I get on the. Panel. I have
1: indeed chosen an on bonk panel because there's there's literally a wheel. With every judge's name on a ball, and, and it's in the San Francisco courthouse. And for each on banc draw, they take the wheel around to a different yeah. chambers. And although it's theory, theoretically, the judge is supposed to do it. In reality, yeah, the clerks, the clerks get to do it. So you you literally now one's automatic. The chief judge sits mm-hmm. on every on banc panel. So that's uh, Judge Thomas in Montana, um, I think. Yes. Um, so, but you pick the other ten. And you pick the ten out of the ball and it's whoever you get. And there are twenty eight active judges on the ninth circuit. So subtract Judge Thomas, you're picking ten out of twenty seven. Bobby, you know, I'm no I'm no I wasn't a math major. Oh wait, yes I was. Oh. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Let's not go down that road. You can get some pretty wildly yeah, diverse on bonk pins. So I want
0: to hear a little bit of uh, what it's like. I want to put put the listeners in the room when this this contraption <laughs> is brought in. So it looks like a bingo setup. It, who all? How many people are watching? What kind of witnesses are there to make sure you don't you know cherry pick your favorite ten judges? Well, there's
1: the there, there's the person from the clerk's office. Okay, yep. just you
0: and the you and the clerk's you office. Know,
1: usually someone else comes. A, you know, someone either someone else from the clerk's office or one of your fellow. So you grab the handle. On. You
0: start rotating the cage. The tiles are pull, pull, falling. Pulling the ball. And it's and, like and, and do you say like. The first judge selected is, and you read out the name dramatically. You're not doing this for an audience. Oh, you are now? Well, all right.
1: <laughs> um, no, but it's like, you know, um, you do actually, at least I, I the, the one time I did it, we actually did place the judges in seniority order as we pulled them, um, right? But so um, I remember that I pulled um, a, an on banc panel for a Title Seven case. That was really not good. From your perspective, from my perspective, <laughs> well, um, that's
0: good, good on you to allow the process to unfold without trying to pull some sort of like fire alarm, switch the tiles around, totally. gambit. But I say all this because in the, the Ninth Circuit is unique in this respect, in that
1: what was normally, I think, a very straightforward calculus, yeah. about whether it's worth trying to take a what you think of as outlier panel decision on bonk in the Ninth Circuit, it's really you don't you know. Don't know. Um, I say that because um, the defendant in the Ninth Circuit case has filed a motion in the Ninth Circuit to stay the mandate pending filing of a cert petition. And that's an interesting filing because it basically suggests... They're not bound by it, Yeah. but you wouldn't need to do that if you were filing for rehearing because the rehearing petition would
0: automatically stay the mandate. Sounds sounds like they're planning to try to get their case joined up with Hernandez, too.
1: Yeah, although, I mean... (sighs) That's up to the Supreme Court because we're going to be barring some something really surprising. Hernandez too will be on the list for the so-called long conference. This is the big back to work conference the justices have in September right before the count, the term opens. You know the briefing in Rodriguez won't be done even if they hustle yeah. until well after that. So the court would so have they could to just hold. stay. They
0: could just hold it. Yeah. They could.
1: They could. Yeah. But anyway, all this is to say, um, I don't know if they're going to take Hernandez but they're going to take this issue.
0: I think you're, yeah, I was going to say, they may or may not, they may choose one vehicle over the other, but it looks like the issue is going all the way up. Yep, and, and so it's just a question of- And it of,
1: should. This, let's get this one clear. This is important. Well, so here's what's interesting, right? We filed the cert petition on June 20th when Justice Kennedy was the decided, who who wrote a bossy, was yeah. the deciding vote. He's not going to be the deciding vote anymore. No. And, and, and lest folks think that Judge Kavanaugh hasn't said anything on the subject, Judge Kavanaugh has a long, concurring opinion Um, in a case called Michal versus Higginbotham, where he is very skeptical that court should ever be recognizing Bivens remedies for conduct that even touches extraterritoriality concerns.
0: So he's clearly not going to be more open to these no. claims than Kennedy, but it, do you think he's actually going to be yes. any narrower? You think he will be narrow? Yes. yes. Oh, by the way, let's digress briefly without opening up the full Kavanaugh can of worms, <laughs> but just purely predictive. Uh, do you think that the majority, the Senate majority leader is going to succeed in getting the process done before disclosure of all the, the documents? In other words, yes. are, yeah, think they will? Yes. All right. Is there some kind of stunt that could be pulled like many years ago when the Democrats in the Texas legislature tried to or did Fleet. leave the state to the, prevent the, there are think, st- to prevent a quorum? There are stunts. I just don't know that that the Chuck Schumer thinks it's going to be worth it. I
1: mean I think I think there's a distinct sense that although they're waging a very, you know, loud public relations right. battle, they but don't but actually, to actually going
0: to win uh, this one. Th- well, there, could be, you know, there is the question of like how will this affect some of the closer races if they do that. Yep. Yep. All Including right. here in Texas. Indeed. Wow, that one's getting interesting Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz, uh, which I think a lot of people didn't think were going to have a very close race, uh, it's actually beginning to look like it might be kind of close. And so I think we're going to see probably as much or more spotlight on that race than any of the others.
1: I mean, it's interesting, right, because Texas is incredibly expensive to get into if you're you're trying to do a media buy, right, to influence a a Senate campaign. But there's a scenario where if the polls don't get better for the Republicans— Right right now, I think it's clear the Republicans are going to hold on to the Senate— There's a scenario where if things turn a little bit south, right, between now and, I don't know, mid-September, Texas becomes a pretty important race for Republican control of the Senate. It becomes
0: not only important for that in the first instance, but it becomes terribly important symbolically in over uh, the near term going into 2020 about narratives about whether or not it ever makes sense for Democrats to really invest in Texas. Because if you actually could put – if you could put a Democrat – in Ted Cruz's seat it would open up possibilities that would draw attention money and you know uh, organization for a whole array of other races yep. so i think that there I, mean, r- I do i do think the democrats are going to pick up a bunch of house seats in texas
1: cuz there are there are some retiring republicans who don't have like yeah. the most attractive people replacing them right there are some demographic shifts that turn some of those right. you know lean red districts right. into actual toss but toss-ups. But, it, but
0: no statewide race yeah. here has gone democrat in a very very Ann long Richards? time uh, I don't remember the last one, to be honest. Uh, but uh, to take a, a Senate seat yeah. uh, since Lloyd Benson, I assume. Right? Yeah, yeah. All
1: right. Anyway, so that's uh, our Rodriguez Hernandez. Uh, you know, I think it's almost a certainty that one of those cases gets to the Supreme Court next year now. Yep. I'm which with is, you on which that. Which interesting because when we sat down to record the podcast
0: last week, I would have said like 2%. All right. So we were just talking about... Uh, Quorums and in things that are in quarate. Ah, uh, longtime listeners of the pod will know that one of our uh old chestnuts is the in quarate peaclob. Do, do you remember where in came from?
1: Do you remember what where we learned that word? Uh, were we talking about the peaclob? No, or? we're talking about the Irish. I mean, we were, but but <laughs> but the the word came to us from the Irish. Times or the Irish the uh what was, what an was the Irish newspaper that was talking about my testimony at this at the Facebook trial last year <laughs> where we were talking about how the Privacy and Civil Liberties Board didn't have a quorum in and it, they called it in We were like, oh my nice. gosh, that's a great
0: word. <laughs> Nicely done, Ireland. Alright, so Bobby, what is the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board? Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board is a five member body that was created uh, during the Obama years as a Is it fair to say, Steve, it's a watchdog organization? It's a government oversight body that is independent, uh, produces reports, has, I I think, bottom line is this, it has tremendous access to the inside baseball Mm -hmm. of terrorism-related surveillance and privacy-type activities, and produced some incredibly influential reports analyzing both the, the practical functioning and the policy merits of the 702 collection program which remains with us to this day in the original section 215 bulk metadata collection program which now exists in a different form under the usa freedom act uh, and i think in in one case uh, 702 p club said look we've taken a, a really close look at it here's this incredibly detailed public report about exactly how it really works very handy product to teach and learn from um, and saying this is really worth it. This this ultimately produces a lot of great and valuable intelligence and there are issues and you could improve it the following ways, but this is good. Section 215, bulk metadata collection in contrast, they concluded really wasn't worth the candle. Here's the limited benefits, here are all the problems. Um, it has a tremendous ability to play the honest broker role in looking into things that the public doesn't have direct access to because it's deeply classified. And that, frankly, the the, uh, the intelligence oversight committees in Congress, it's a role they're supposed to play. But as, as we well know, the House isn't capable of playing that role at all at this moment mm-hmm. because of the way it's been conducted under Chairman Nunes. Um, the Senate definitely has had its ups and downs. It's doing very well right now relative to the House. Uh, But having P-Club out there was really a much more nimble and, frankly, I think quite credible body. But bit by bit, its it's last round of members uh, dropped off until Beth Collins was the last remaining one. There have been a bunch of nominees. Uh, There had already been Adam Klein nominated to become the chair, Ed Felton from Princeton to uh, to join it. Uh, Jane Nitze, former OLC lawyer to join it. Now we've got nominees of Travis LeBlanc, uh, formerly at FCC and, and uh, Aditya Bamsai from University of Virginia. Um, if everybody can, could- my, my good friend. Yes, yes, so so get more national security law professors on there, we say. <laughs> um, so if you could just confirm these folks, every one of these would be great. These are all really talented, capable, and here's here's the point we wanna to convey to those who don't sort of follow the ins and outs of who's who. These are all really reasonable, trustworthy, talented, normal people. They, they make a ton of sense. Um whether the Senate is gonna act on any of this is anybody's guess. Uh until they do, the P club is in quorate, can't actually perform its functions. It's gotta have at least three members to do anything. Um it would have been really handy during the last round of surveillance reauthorization uh travails to have the P club functioning and able to, you know, provide up-to-date reports that would inform that debate. Those debates are settled for the moment, but they're gonna come back. So Senate Confirm these people, Steve. Would you uh, be on the confirm these people team? Hundred percent. All right. I mean, I, they're not the people I would pick if I were the
1: president. But you know, these are deep thinking, responsible folks. And listen, I mean, I don't think it is. Con- I don't think it's controversial to say that you know perhaps the most thorough public discussion
0: of Section Seven Hundred Two. Is in the p club report. No doubt. And the most, def- and frankly, the thing that did the most damage to, if you don't like bulk metadata collection, if that bothered you, the thing that really really stuck the knife in it was the P-Clob report. Yeah. So it really kind of saved 702 and sunk uh, 215. Uh, speaks well of it, I think, in general. Now, uh, let's move on. A quick military commissions note. Um, it's- I-, I have one quick DC Circuit update. Oh, you do? I did it again. Oh. Wait, w- w- you're not telling me there's a new opinion like while we've been recording. Uh-huh. Here? Oh, what is it now? This
1: is uh, in Qasim versus Trump. This is another Guantanamo habeas case. It heavens. They have denied the petition for initial hearing on Bonk, but Judge Tadel has written a concurrence where he says, "Yes, we should wait for the ordinary course of things to progress, but there are some serious problems in our panel precedents that we might want to revisit in an appropriate." What's case. the issue in Cassim? It's it's the whole it's the whole procedural side. Of the Gitmo habeas jurisprudence, the burden of proof, hearsay evidence, whether intelligence reports are entitled to a presumption of right its its trying to relitigate some trying of to the, relitigate some like long clothes.
0: Al bahani Al Latif—that whole that whole. Yeah, I wouldn't hold my breath on that going anywhere. No, but it's interesting. I mean, no, it's, just, it's certainly yeah. interesting to see anyone mentioning now. But can you—that'd uh, be a hell of a thing for the circuit to to roll in all these years later and say, you know, on reflection on second thought, all that common law developed process and evidentiary rules that we've repeatedly relied upon. Nah, let's upset some of that. Well, I, I think that'd be a, I think that'd be I said, a, hell, a hell of a that's thing. That's an overstatement. I think is it? I, yes. In, in what way? I mean, there's been this vast apparatus that has largely run its course over the period I, of years. I don't, I don't think the DC circuit tomorrow is going to say, never mind when we, said
1: when we said preponderance, we meant clear and convincing. But I do think that there are some problems at the margins. For example, the, con- the discussion of conditional probability analysis in al Dahi and the presumption of regularity in Latif that I think are not necessarily bedrocks to the court's Guantanamo jurisprudence that
0: actually have caused mischief. But- Another time. Well, we shall see. All right. And then uh, meanwhile, at Guantanamo, we've got a new judge, a replacing judge. This is replacing Judge Spath, is it? Yep. So this is Judge Schools?
1: Judge Schools.
0: So now, does Judge Schools actually have anything to do right now, or is it all still hung up? I think our listeners may have lost the thread of the tin layer dip. So this is Alan Shiri, Um and you know, we I think we mentioned a couple weeks ago that Judge Spath had announced his
1: retirement from the Air Force, I think effective November 1st. Um, the case is abated. Now you know there's a question about whether Judge Schools would have the authority and/or the wherewithal to revisit any of the rulings by Judge Spaff yeah. that led to the abatement, but from a procedural perspective. The ball is in the Court of Military Christian Review's hands right now. And Bobby, once again, the CMCR is covering itself in glory with how expeditiously it is handling this critical appeal on which no one thinks it's going to have the last word.
0: So I think uh, going forward, we need to have a little bit of a tracker on this. We talk about how long it's it's been since this uh, issue was put before it. And, you know, let's get a clock going. Do you have a ballpark sense of how long it's been already? Um, Five months. Yeah, come on. All right, um, how about we pivot over to Trumplandia and then get on to a few final matters. Uh, in a moment, we'll talk about some of these rulings on the constitutionality of Mueller's appointment. Uh, do we want to go down the Omarosa road? Do you want to say anything about this? I just want, the only thing I want to say is
1: that, once again... This White House shows that it takes security oh so seriously when it has when it fires someone without a security clearance in the situation room in a meeting in which she's somehow allowed to bring in a phone pursuant to which she records a conversation. The situation room is a skiff,
0: right? Can't bring a phone into a skiff. You, you're not supposed to be in a skiff if you don't have a security clearance. Here, here, here's the question I think a lot of people are wondering about, though. So what's the penalty for someone who says, huh, I did it? And and she's certainly not the first person who's ever actually walked in with their phone. So
1: usually it's some kind of administrative discipline. People can have their clearances suspended. Or Or she has no clearance. Well, there you go. Well. um, But isn't it it interesting that a White House that ran largely on the claim that their opponents were so careless with sensitive national security information
0: (laughs) are themselves so careful about it? Well, we could go deep down that rabbit hole we have many times. We don't disagree. Uh, National Security Division notes, or do you, or do you want to say something about the Mueller opinions? Just really quickly, so I think it's worth stressing that there is this
1: theory that has gained some traction in, I would say, far right legal circles, um, that the entire Mueller investigation is constitutionally illegitimate, um, that his appointment is invalid, that he's a principal officer, not an inferior officer. All kinds of good stuff. It's a unitary
0: executive violation.
1: To a point, there's also a more nuanced argument that he's not technically an officer of the United States because no statute expressly creates his position. I mean, there, there, you know, there's yeah. sort of a kitchen sinky type feel to this. Okay, um, there are now four different district court opinions rejecting all or parts of this argument by four different district judges in two different districts, DDC and EDVA. Um, Judge Ellis rejected this in the Manafort case. Uh, Judge Howell, I think, in the the most thorough of these opinions, rejected it in the Andrew Miller grand jury subpoena context. Miller, by the way, is now in contempt, which apparently he engineered solely so he could appeal Judge Howell's ruling to the D.C.
0: Circuit, where I don't think he's going to get any more yes. favorable treatment. That's, 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 a, that's putting a lot of chips on the table yes. for a, a weak hand. But
1: the most recent development was yesterday when Judge Friedrich, a Trump appointee, yeah. rejected Concord Management, right? one of the defendants in the special counsel investigation. Um, their motion to dismiss based on Mueller's invalidity. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I got to say, this is, I agree with these now. I mean, I, I wrote before we had any of these opinions why I thought this argument was bunk, but, um, It's nice to see judges of all ideological stripes, you know, taking
0: it seriously, but not too seriously. Right. Well, and that's that's the system operating as it should. I I certainly don't begrudge any defendants for trying any and all arguments that are non-frivolous arguments that they can. Um, And then the court's rule on them as they should and as they have here. So I think that put that ought to put that to rest, even though we understand that there's also the court of public opinion and the battles of ideas that are out there surrounding this case. And I'm sure it'll continue to circulate as part of the litany of, of criticisms. Mm-hmm. All right, a few National Security Division notes. Uh, we've had uh, four cases I'll quickly mention that have had significant developments uh, since last we did this sort of piece. Uh, first of all, just uh, this morning, there was a, a press release noting that yesterday, a guy named Rashid El jajakli who's from Syria but is a naturalized U.S. citizen, turns out he was uh, functioning basically as an arms broker, uh, shipping laser scopes, night vision goggles, and the like. This is interesting. To Syrian rebel groups, but nonetheless prosecuted for it for, for violating uh, uh, International Emergency Economic Powers Act. AIPA, I knew I could count on you to chime in. AIPA uh, constraints on arms trade. Uh, secondly, a uh, man from Seattle, Joseph uh, Dibby. He was a 12-year fugitive, Steve. Uh, one of a number of fugitives associated with the series of, of arsons and sort of uh, your, your kind of classic Earth Liberation Front, Animal Liberation Front activity from a little over a decade ago. Others have been caught. This guy was on the run. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah, He was traveling, according to the press release, traveling through Central America on his way to Russia. Maybe he was going to go visit Edward Snowden. I don't know. He had a planned stop in Cuba. Um, with the assistance, this is the interesting this part. it sounds like the Red October, right? Yeah, right. We're, we're, we're sailing to Cuba. I would like to see Montana. Okay. Uh, with the assi- I would like to have seen Montana. With the assistance of the Cuban authorities, particularly the ministries of the interior and exterior, um, we arranged for his, uh, detention, his, uh, he was detained in Havana bef- right before he got on his plane for Russia and sent back to the U S that's quite a sight. I'm actually, maybe that sort of thing has happened a fair amount is including in, in, you know, run of the mill cases, but you know, Cuban authorities catching the, uh, the guy wanted by America before he gets off to Russia and then sent to the United States. That's something, uh, what else have we got? Um, uh, Zachariah Abdin, uh, a young man from South Carolina, pled guilty last week to providing material support to the Islamic State. It's a sad story. This guy, uh, guy seems to have been radicalized. A lot of online activity, trying to get in touch with people who would help him figure out how to get to the Islamic State, ends up uh, you know, making quite clear his, his interest in fighting for the Islamic State. He gets, he gets captured and never makes it there and is now... Uh, going to probably get a 20-year sentence, I would imagine, under the material support statute. And then uh, if you're wondering what happens if you only attempt to provide material support, well, you're probably going to get 15 years, like uh, uh, defendant Everett Jameson of California, who's got a 15-year sentence for uh, interest in attempting to uh, get involved in a terrorist attack. So DOJ continues to rack up the victories, and, and quickly so, once more, in stark contrast to how it goes when we revert to the commission system. Ah, uh, the military commissions The gift that keeps on getting them. I know. Um, and, you know, let me repeat this because, you know, we have new listeners from time to time. I'm not opposed to the military commissions in principle, and I think that on the whole they, they have the capability historically to, to play an important role. Um, the current iteration just can't seem to work. And and the idea that the way you get tough on uh, people who you want to prosecute for terrorism-related crimes is to put them into that uh, situation just seems belied by the facts. Wow, are you sure you're Bobby? I this is no different than what no, I've been I saying. Don't. I do I do I, I, I just
1: I think it's it's the military commissions are I think one of the few areas of contemporary national security law where even folks who for a long time were very you know I think worthy defenders of what the government was doing have started to yeah sort
0: of express concerns. Yeah, look, I mean, if if you come at so first of all. No one should have to choose between coming at this only from a uh, defendant's rights perspective versus uh, we need to administer you know, criminal justice appropriately as to people who are themselves going around harming other people in the worst possible ways. Um, that said, it's, you know, it's no, no secret that you know I'm looking at it a little bit more from the security perspective than the rights perspective relative to you. But we both agree that whichever of those measures you prefer as your primary lens, the commission isn't delivering. That's right. All right. Um so uh, that's actually the run of show substantively. Yeah, and great. It's, and, and it's only we're only in 50 minutes. All right, let's try to actually confine ourselves but, yeah, we have so much frivolity to engage so frivolity. in. So, listen, if you don't enjoy the frivolity, thanks Bye. for being a listener on this episode. We'll see you next week. Um, but if you do enjoy the frivolity or at least you can't reach the pause button, ha, ha, ha. Here, here we go. Um, have you read, watched, or enjoyed any kind of movie, book, TV show lately that is worth a mention, Steve?
1: So, I, I, will, I, will, make, I, will, I will say three quick things. Um, so, number one, the book I'm reading right now is actually a book about the founding of Austin. Um, cool. And the fight between Mirabeau Lamar oh, yeah. and Sam Houston yeah, yeah. over sort of the fate of Texas.
0: All right. Um. So the alternative. Uh, was what for our state capital? Uh,
1: the alternative was was it uh, Washington on the, on the Brazos, Brazos, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm making sure I'm. I my Texas history. Yeah, I just
0: I, everyone needs to appreciate how, how. So I I am a native Texan Indeed. and I I am. It took like four years of Texas history. I'm, I'm Texan right down to my red wing boots, <laughs> and the joy I get from from Steve becoming steeped in our ways is is. Measureless. Totally. All right. Anyway, and and indeed, that Austin's original name was Waterloo. Oh, absolutely.
1: So, all right. Um, It's like, well, there's a Wellington Napoleon reference here somewhere. Um, Karen and I just finished two different seasons of TV shows that we both enjoyed thoroughly. The first is Succession, um, which is this HBO show that's sort of, you know, part, um, I don't know how, it's it's like, it's almost satire. It's like this whole, it's like this nasty, high-powered corporate family Fighting over like how the things are going to unfold with the you know the takeover. Oh, this from isn't the, like a
0: twenty-fifth amendment drama. No, no, no. This is like uh, <laughs> this is like
1: billions crossed with like the um, Bernie Madoff movie crossed with like a couple other things. It's so a corporate high-powered corporate uh, control drama, but with family with family undertones. Of oh, of course. And of course. Um, we also just finished on Netflix. Um, and this is actually for for our non-American listeners out there. And I'm looking at you, Macquarie University. Um, we finished a show called Secret City, which is hmm. an Australian show. Um, or at least, sorry, we finished season one. There's apparently season two in the okay. works. Okay. Um, about this big national security sort of themed scandal and conflict within the Australian government Ooh, um, between their military and their intelligence agencies and, like, with tension about sort of their situational position vis-a-vis China versus the United States. Oh, really? That Ma- sounds fantastic. Mackay Pfeiffer is the U.S. ambassador to Australia. Oh, my um, God. That Anna, is great. Anna Torv, um, who, you know, I think is is um, better known to folks. Wait, what is she in? Uh-oh. Um, well, Anna Torv is the lead actress, but she's in some other show, and I can't remember which one it is, um, that we also watch. Anyway, um, she's great. Um, so, um, Secret City and Succession, both good fun. So,
0: clearly what we need is a is a thoroughly well-funded... Oh, oh uh, yes. Anna
1: Torv is in, um, um, what's the FBI? Uh, Mindhunter, which was also fantastic. Karen and I loved Mindhunter. I don't even know um, this one. Which is a series that I think is loosely based on reality about the sort of... Onset of the FBI's behavioral sciences unit. Oh, interesting. Okay. And the sort of the late 70s. Are we talking like serial killer profiles? Exactly so. On Silence um, so of the Lambs. Anatorv,
0: Anatorv, is in that. Okay, that's interesting. It sounds creepy
1: though, All too. Right. It, it's very creepy, but it's actually it's creepy, but not in the sort of, oh my god, I'm gonna, I'm never gonna sleep at night way that Silence of the Lambs is. Alright, so you're your reference to Australia in, in Have you been to yes. Australia? I've been to, so I've been to Sydney and I've been to Melbourne. What's fascinating about Secret City is it is set entirely in Canberra, mm-hmm. which I've never even seen pictures of. So it's actually fun even for even for, you know, someone who's been to at least you know, New South Wales and Victoria um, to see another look at you sort with of part of Australia. My Australian knowledge. geography. So Can never... you name other states in Australia?
0: Uh, I Look, we're not going to turn this into a geography competition. <laughs> I, I was told there'd be no math. Western Australia, South Australia, uh, you.
1: Queensland.
0: Oh, I, you know, look, where I want to go with this is I've never been down there. I think that uh, it would be awesome Tasmania. if someone wants to send us, you know, first class tickets. We will come do a live recording of the podcast for uh, Australian audience wherever in Australia well you know,
1: you know John Ip um, yeah yeah so John Ip is, is a friend of ours and John Ipp teaches national security law at the University of Auckland which is in Australia but it's even better it's New Zealand
0: well, well if we go all the way we obviously want to visit both All right, our, th- both are five eyes friends but here's my only request if we do have this
1: grand field trip to Australia and New Zealand can yeah. we please stop in American Samoa on the way back Oh sh- look!
0: Uh, let's make it a full tour. We got a let's lot just of. Let's Borrow places someone's to hit. private plane. So I think I think what we need our listeners to do is to get us some sweet first class tickets. We will bring the show or to your track. backyard. Private jet of work, um, and uh, you know this reminds me. So Heather, my wife, has been listening to uh, my favorite murder, which is a podcast series with these. This dynamic duo—they're—they're they're so funny and warm—and and they just—do you know this one? Have you listened to it? It's a great series. It's immensely popular to the point where it turns out they go on tour, they sell out theaters, and do live recordings of the live. Dude, we're doing this wrong. Yeah, I know. And, and so I'm like, oh, how? Well, Heather well, and, and we're both speaking at Trip Fest without like any podcast I know. know. Um, well, well, we'll we'll get that fixed we'll next year at Tribfest. But I don't think you know we we yes, audience notionally maybe is up to ten thousand. <laughs> so I asked Heather. I was like, well, how many do they have? Because like. They're like, this is what they do for a living yeah, now. And yeah, they yeah. have this incredible ability to go on tour. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, it's let's just say it's multiples by, you know, move the decimal place on Exponential. yours. So I think our goal, Steve, has got to be to get up to around 100,000 oh, or yeah. so. that's going to happen. And then we can just go tour around.
1: Yeah. So listen, my, my sister and brother-in-law both host... Very popular podcast. Um, do they ever do live recordings? They, every once in a while. But my point is just that that like if we think like we're cool because we have ten thousand listeners, no, no, they're like in the 150, 250 range. Oh my god! Well, the, so I don't think I don't think Forever Thirty Five is quite there yet. But Forever Thirty Five is is is. Rising with the Bullet. Matt hosts like all of these podcasts that have huge fo- like Star Trek The Next yeah, Conversation. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. He's on the Nerdist for a while. I mean, this is, yeah. you know. I think there's a ceiling to our audience, but I think it can be much bigger than it is. Ha! <laughs> now, uh, I, now I've, I've been watching some stuff, too. We uh, made a family trip the other night to the Draft House, Almo Draft House, and saw the new Mission Impossible. Do you oh. watch any of the Mission Impossible? I've seen all of them. Okay. Have you seen the new one?
1: I accept the new one.
0: <laughs> okay, well, then I won't, I won't do any spoilers. Um, I, had, I hadn't seen one since the original. Really? And I you was, didn't see the Dubai one? No, I've oh. not seen any of these other ones. But i got to say, and in, in partly I, I, it's reluctance because – you know tom cruise kind of has weirded me out in recent years and in yeah. some of the odd stuff he's done you got to spend your tom you, cruise but a you got to because you know what i got to say it tom cruise is still fantastic to watch on that screen and i thought mission impossible the new one is fantastic it was so fun from start to finish you, you know silly as can be but it delivered on a couple of great no, no, typical the, the mission impossible. I mean,
1: If you want to go sit in a movie theater for two hours and 15 minutes and just be, you know. Just be entertained. Entertained.
0: Yeah. It Are th- you not entertained? I was entertained, Maximus. I was. Uh, what else? I've finished reading David Sanger's The Perfect Weapon, which is, you know, Sanger, of course, is the uh, the New York Times uh, reporter who has done such amazing work following the uh, the geopolitical the military applications of cyber power uh, and the book really kind of is it. <laughs> you a, gotta get out more. Yeah, exactly. I know. Look, this is the kind of stuff I enjoy. If, uh, if you don't follow this area, but you generally understand that these are important things and you wish you kind of had a good grip on, you know, where does the Sony hack fit in with uh, the Stuxnet? Where does it fit in with interference with North Korean missile launches? How does it all kind of come together? And why, was it, why has this been such a hard issue, especially in recent years? Um, this is a great introduction that, d- that provides a series of what amount of case studies uh, first cuts at the history of each of these. Um, I think that if you are steeped in these details, and especially if you've just been following David's reporting all along, it's more of a nice review and a well-written review. Um, but it's a great intro for those who want to get their feet wet in this area. Cool. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Uh, oh, cool. I, never, I never said anything about the Mr. Rogers documentary Indeed. after mentioning the other day that I saw it. Okay, so the, the first thing you need to know is, should you go see it? Yes. Second thing, should you bring Kleenex? Yes. <laughs> I had not really understood what we, what this documentary was going to be like and I was not remotely prepared for the way that it would pull so effectively on um, my my parental heartstrings and uh, my appreciation, you know, for growing up gener- generation X with Mr. Rogers firmly implanted in nostalgia and then the larger implications for the Mr. Rogers you know, loving worldview and this incredible incredible gift he had for creating warmth, safety and love in that environment of childhood and springboarding from that to talk about how we as adults ought to be treating each other. Um, how powerfully that would resonate in 2018, where we just seemed to have lost our lost our minds in terms of failing to understand how those lessons that we we hope all our children, learn should govern our own lives so I, I think it was a, a really powerful story um, you learned some really fascinating unexpected things about some of the people he worked with on the show who of course you don't really know them by name you just know Mr. Rogers uh, He was a great man who lived a great life and was you know he was a powerful witness to how we ought to live So thumbs up to the Mr. Rogers documentary Brilliant um, We're in that weird sports
1: lull right it's like you know the Premier League just started Spurs are undefeated woohoo.
0: Oh, their new stadium is apparently having problems. Um, but are the- talking about Tottenham? Yes. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like if I had a team I'd root for in English Premier Spurs. League, it would be the Tottenham Spurs. You, know, you
1: have all the Spurs off already. Speaking, yeah. of, speaking of the Spurs, though, um, so 538 came out with their uh, NBA projections for, for next year. L-
0: let me guess. I've not seen these, but I will guess that the typical insulting uh, underestimation of the Spurs, where they probably haven't... Them- Far down.
1: So, so pr- what, what record would, be, would would qualify as underestimating insulting
0: for a kawhi Spurs team? Well, considering they were kawhi last year, and this year they're adding in DeMar Rosen to replace that gap, they should be at least as good, if not better, than this past year. So what, what record would that lead them to? Uh, I, don't, I don't know about I'm not going to project a record, <laughs> but certainly a winning record and certainly a playoff seed. I'd, I'd guess the Spurs you know, are going to be battling for four or five, fourth or fifth. Where do they have them?
1: Ninth in the West, forty and forty-two. What a joke! So the the the, the ratings have the Warriors as a forty-two percent chance to win the NBA title.
0: Okay. So Warriors certainly number one in the West. Um, the Rockets number two, and then the Raptors. The Kawhi. The fight in Kawhi's. Yeah, did so break it down with the Western Conference there. Who did, so I, it's obviously a gimme that Warriors are number one. The Rockets, Rockets being number two makes a ton of sense, except there is the Carmelo Anthony factor. Well, so that's, the question is which way does that cut? Um, oh, it certainly doesn't enhance them. But it has the. T- I mean, listen, I'm a Knicks fan. I know. Um, yeah, it, exactly. I would think you would immediately agree that there's a huge prospect of a slight drop off. Oh, of for course,
1: them. but it has the it has the Rockets, the Thunder. And the Timberwolves all sort of grouped right around the fifty-three yeah. win mark.
0: The the Timberwolves is a bit of a guess. They they could yeah. mature into that. Oh, the, and the Jazz. I'm sorry, the Jazz. Okay, yeah. So the the Jazz Rockets makes Thunder, more sense.
1: Sorry, Rockets, Thunder, Jazz at two, three, four. T Wolves right around five, and then right behind them, the Lakers, the Nuggets, and the Pelicans.
0: Yeah. No. The the idea that the Lakers all- are going to be so strange. It's not obvious how well that's going to work. I, I, it's hard to say that the Lakers can't at least get the eighth seed, but it's not like they were any good last year. And you, you, people are assuming a lot about those prospects. All you know that 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 Lonzo and company will really mature, thanks and, and benefit enough from LeBron being there. We'll see. Bottom line, um, it's it doesn't surprise me at all as a longtime Spurs fan that the national media doesn't pay respect to the Spurs uh, in any particular instance. Everyone <laughs> loves. No everyone loves to re- say nice things about them overall as a franchise and over time. But um, oh, by the way, the- you, uh, you heard it here first. They'll be content. They'll be fighting with the Jazz, Timberwolves. Uh, and Nuggets for that, f- and in the, the Pelicans, but they'll be in that middle chunk of the West playoff season. Uh,
1: AP alert: Trump campaign files arbitration action against Omarosa, alleging
0: breach of secrecy agreement. Well, no doubt. It sounds like I didn't. I didn't look at the the document. I assume the document's out there. It Probably has an arbitration clause. All right. Could say one thing about the Red Sox before we go? Uh, but wait, real quick question: oh. Do you know on arbitration law? Yeah. Um, with the contract, there are contract clauses that are against public policy. Yep. Surely that same doctrine carries through to arbitration law? Yes,
1: yes, yes, yes. Okay. And there
0: and there are lots of grounds on
1: which you could hold that a contract is unenforceable. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's interesting here, this is, you know, we didn't talk much about the non-disclosure agreement piece of this whole Omarosa story. Maybe we'll save that for next yeah. time. Um, you know, I know it's a very good argument that that holding go- public government employees to NDAs um, raises serious not just public policy problems,
0: but First Amendment problems. Oh, absolutely. No, no question about that. But, no, I think, I think it's ridiculous. Right. Um, now, there's... There's the realm of classified information, which is a different kettle yeah, of yeah. fish. But the idea that you can just say, "Hey, sign this contract. We're going to pay you." There, look, there's this whole thing about bringing the campaign. Yeah. And like, there's something that smells so fishy and yeah. wrong about this. Yeah. It's just I'm, I'm looking for someone who can explain to me very clearly. Okay, here's exactly where this is already wrong, as opposed to this ought to be. So wrong. So I think Brad Moss wrote a little bit about this, but um, you know, I, it's
1: all. I mean, it may, it may help to explain why there's been so few people speaking. Right they And why, sure and why un, uh, for unusually for a White House, folks who have left have stayed pretty quiet. Well,
0: and there's so many who have left, and it is bound to be so juicy what was going on. Yep. Now you know. They're getting paid $15,000 a month out of the donations of people to the uh, Trump campaign.
1: All right. Really quickly, I just want to say one quick word about the Red Sox, because Karen, who doesn't listen to this podcast, and I know she doesn't listen, because every time I say she doesn't listen, she doesn't say, yes, I do. Um, the Red Sox, <laughs> no Bobby, comment. are 85 and 35. Yeah. Th- what are they on track for? So... I mean, they're on track for 111 or 112 wins. They have to go to set a franchise record for wins in a season. This is the Red Sox. They have to go 21-21 and 21 in their final 42 games. That should happen. If they go 31-11, and 11, which is not beyond the pale, given where they are right they'll now, pass the they'll record. tie the, the 2001 Seattle Mariners and the 1906 Chicago Cubs for the most wins in So like that's history.
0: something to shoot for. This is a little bit like when the Warriors yeah. were gunning for the all-time yeah, win yeah. total in the NBA. And there's there is an element of history that's... A pretty big chunk to reach for towards the end of the season this begins to butt up against resting your pitchers yeah, yeah, enough yeah. for the playoff run. I, I that's think, more I think, important I, I
1: think they'll, I think I think they'll re- you know Gabe Ka- he's no Gabe Kapler's no dumb he's no, not Gabe Kapler who's the Red Sox manager anyway whoever the Red Sox manager is um <laughs> I, I don't think they're. Yeah. I, I think they're not gonna but Chris Sale looked pretty good the other day Red Sox are scary which of course makes my house intolerable in October 12
0: strikeouts in five innings Good heavens! Hey, there's always the Giants. Hey, I still, I still think uh, the Astros will prevent a formidable challenge. I'd love to see a Red Sox Astros ALCS. Uh, could easily happen. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, unless the assuming the Yankees
1: win the Wild, like card how great game. to see
0: if if Verlander you know in his form, him and Chris Sale pitching some sort of decisive listen the decision game. series. I mean, the division series.
1: I mean, you could have you could have Red Sox Yankees and Indians Astros. I mean, that would be yeah. great fun. You know, the
0: Indians are you know it. I'm looking at the the West. The Astros, a the A's are a great story this year. The Mariners are looking incredible. Wait, I mean, it, the Astros are only wait. The they're, a, the A's they're just are a only, few games. Ahead. They're
1: only two games out.
0: The Astros got swept by the Mariners. When did that happen? They they just got swept. Wow. So uh, that's going to be a real battle. That's going to be the best race to watch. Huh.
1: And and Oakland's now actually only three and a half behind the Yankees for the second wild card. And meanwhile, or if, you, for look, the first if card. you look
0: over at the uh, National League Central, uh. it's it's uh, you know no one's distinguishing themselves. Obviously, the Cubs are. As is typical in recent years, looking pretty good. But the Cardinals are slowly getting it together. The Brewers are hanging in there. Meanwhile, so
1: so I asked baseball reference. I stumped baseball reference with a trivia question. uh, What was it? So the Indians um, have the the weakest record. Uh, Okay. Oh, by the way, way, do you think anybody's still listening? No. So um, (laughs) this wasn't this isn't true today. But like three or four days ago, the Indians had the worst record among division leaders. Um, and they had the largest divisional lead. And I asked them, when was the last time that happened.
0: Yeah. I know. Um, this late in the season. And so you're still waiting on that. Uh, no, they
1: said, they basically sent me their databases
0: like, have at it, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> not so much stumped them as didn't fully interest them in answering.
1: Well, I asked them a question they did yeah, not that's answer. True. That's true.
0: That's stumping. I think you're right. All, right. all right. Well, we've certainly stumped our listeners by just rambling on and having fun. Guys, this is what Steve and I do. True. Th- this is why we decided to record the podcast. This, this, is, this is why we're behind on our writing obligations and our committee responsibilities right. and all this so, other stuff. So, you know, we we could get into that. We've moved <laughs> on too much. Let's just stop it here. We'll talk in the next episode about what we've been writing this summer. I um, think actually we might we might even, yes, I think we'll we'll, we'll do maybe our, our summer projects, maybe a, one last update on
1: national developments, and then – you know, I think we might record a couple deep dives. That's right. To, to get us
0: through your vacation indeed, period.
1: Because at know, least one, at least one, maybe two.
0: All right. On that note, but Bobby and I are fighting about whether it's going to be one or two. I, I'm arguing for, I want to give us a break. I think we should need to take a week off. We're going to have two and a half weeks off not on vacation. Well, I know, but like, I don't want to do the, I don't want to time shift the work into this <laughs> last week of summer.
1: <laughs> anyway, uh, if you're still listening, stay safe out there.
0: Adios.